Hi there! Welcome to Textures, a podcast about art, design and entrepreneurship. My name is Valérie Legras. In each episode, I meet with an artist, designer, creator, innovator, individuals who add textures to our world. We discuss how they are able to make it happen. Join me in discovering their world, their work, and how they go about living and leading a life that inspires themselves and others. Laurel Pocari is with me today. She was born and raised in Yonkers, New York, a smallish city just north of the Bronx. She moved to New York City to attend Pratt Institute, earning a bachelor's degree in architecture and later a Master of Science in Architecture and Urban Design from Columbia University. Such a strong education. But eventually, Laurel took her scientific and design interest into the realm of visual expression. Her creation come together from theory to small physical components into large-scale composition that features an expertise with all kinds of material. Her main focus today is glass and resin. She has worked features in permanent collection all over the country. Laurel is also dedicated to the expansion of art and design education, and she's a strong supporter of a young New Orleans creative community. Join me now for our conversation. Hi, Laurel. Thank you so much for having me here in your studio. Well, thank you. It's so nice to see you, Valerie. So we're not going to discuss about your studio and right now. We're just going to start right away about um, how you started your creative journey. But I really want to uh, describe the environment we are in today. So we're going to come back to that later on. Um, so tell us, you are not from New Orleans. You're from... Uh, New York State, I believe. I am from Yonkers, New York, specifically. Um, and then New York City, like as soon as I graduated high school, I ran away to New York City. I went to Pratt, lived in Brooklyn when it wasn't cool, when people were mugged all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> when Myrtle Avenue was called Murder Avenue, you know, and the only the only thing you could get there was like, fried chicken and bad Chinese food yeah but um yeah so I went to Pratt and studied architecture and then worked for a little while in New York City and then um after that went to grad school at Columbia for immediately um, after no I think let me work out the math here because it took me until 1991 so um yeah about five years later did you, you know, your experience working as an architect right after was school? was terrible. <laughs> I worked. <laughs> it was terrible because I was laid off, you know. Like, I had a decent job back up in Westchester County after I graduated from Pratt. And I, sh you know, like in hindsight, like shoulda, woulda, coulda kind of thing. I quit that job uh, with a developer where I was actually, you know, like having stuff built. It might have been really awful but then you enjoyed it you <laughs> I, enjoyed you know, the I kind of enjoyed it because we were really really fast-paced and the work was like in Connecticut and on the in Norwalk and you know doing these sort of interesting rehabs of 
old whalebone corset factories and, and stuff like that in Connecticut. It was cool. Um, but then I got a job offer from Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. And I was like, oh, I got yeah, go to go down. <laughs> I got to go to the city. And then, you know, it, it, 18 months later, it was, everybody was just laid off. And I think this was around the time, I don't know, what was that, 87 or something? Or was it 89? I think it would be 89 because I think when... It was 89, you know, the, when there was a big crash. Yes. And then there were just pink slips on everybody's desks. It was, it was really bad. I mean, it was like carnage. People who had worked there for 15, 20 years were laid off. They went down to some skeleton crew. So, you know, I was only there for 18 months, so I was like, Psh, out the door. Um, you know, and then hustled it for a little while in New York. There were freelance jobs around, but those were all kind of miserable yeah, there was tough. no continuity in that. And finally decided to hide out in graduate school somehow. So then I uh, saw that Columbia University was giving this architecture and urban design master's program that was a three intense semesters in a row. And I made it in and went. And yeah, that was the beginning of a really kind of fun it's time. a good place to hide, as you oh, say. Oh, it's a really good place to hide. Really, really good place to hide. Not as good as hiding in Australia, which is where I went after that. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, there were a lot of reasons, like, I wanted to leave New York because, um, you know, the 80s in New York were, were wonderful and difficult. They were beautiful and horrific at the same time. There was a lot of creativity. We would go out in New York all the time, and we had all these great projects, and we, you know... We had like a really tight group of people and a lot of those people are dead um, because of the AIDS epidemic and my brother was one of them. So when I went back to school in 91, um, that was kind of right after he had died. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I couldn't stay there anymore. I felt like psychic noise. It was like too many ghosts or something. And at the same time, I met a guy, which, you know, that's convenient fall in love with an Australian guy oh, that's so cool. guess where you get to go <laughs> <laughs> so he was from Perth Western Australia and I went from graduation like two weeks later Stuck straight off. to the opposite side of the world like if you stick a rod from through a globe from New York and the rod would come out like basically Just... in Perth <laughs> You know, like it, you're, you're about flying, it. you're flying, 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 and then you know, you know, you start coming back. <laughs> it's like the, uh-huh. <laughs> come back around. Yeah. So I was in Perth for like six months, and then he and I moved to Melbourne, and I had a couple of good jobs there. The best one was as a full-time faculty member at RMIT, which stands for the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. And that job actually was the first time I got a research grant to do an installation piece. So prior to this, like, kind of really cool academic job, I was a, you know, I would doodle and do some things, but it was never really organized. But a lot of that, like backtracking to going to Pratt, I wound up applying to Pratt first in the art school and then my parents who were, you know, all my grandparents are immigrants, so my parents were first generation, and it was really important for them that I had a profession, 
a serious degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they were like, yeah, you know, the girl, she's going to have to leave the house. So go do something. <laughs> go do something that'll earn you money. Little did they know that architecture is like the <laughs> least paid profession. <laughs> Fooled them, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, so I was always kind of a frustrated artist, but it was that faculty job in Melbourne that was like super good for that and you continue find you, that was your first job in a, as a faculty uh, member mm. university but you had several after that yeah I did some faculty work in West Australia um, but that was adjunct the first full-time tenure track one was in Melbourne so I was well on my way to being a dual American Australian and then yeah it, 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 these things happen where especially in a country that's as far away from the United States as Australia is, you have to make a decision. You either invest completely or you divest. So I divested. I mean, I was getting these weird phone calls from my aging parents like, oh, I have to take your father to the doctor. He needs a bone scan. There's a lump, you know, and then like, <laughs> yeah, you feel guilty. Yeah, you know, and they were like really hitting me with that Italian guilt. Yeah. Come home. They didn't even have to say the words come home. They would just get me on the telephone and sound all pathetic and talk to me about the things that were happening that were awful. <laughs> <laughs> so in Australia, you said you made your first installation? I did. I made my first installation. It was uh, multi-layered, printed on clear plastic construction that was uh, on the floor, like 400 individually printed pieces that were organized on a grid And they were, I took a, a, a location outside in the city and photographed it and reorganized the things that I discovered about this geographic location outside of the, in the city and scaled it to this gallery space that I was given. So it was an ex sort of an extraction and an exchange of space. So I put some things from the gallery out and took some things in. Um, so if I could describe this, it was a, a probably 30 feet long and a couple of feet high. And each of these pieces of plastic was spaced out. So you'd look down on this thing and there would be plastic uh, printed and then a space and these kind of columns and then another piece of plastic printed and a space So there'd be, you know, like five of these things stacked up on top of each other. And then this whole arrangement was 30 feet long. So there were hundreds of these individually printed pieces. And each one, you know, like you could find them. There was a map on the wall. And, you, and it corresponded to a number and a letter on these individual pieces of plastic. So then um, the whole thing was underlit and it kind of glowed. It was pretty, it was pretty groovy, but that was the first time that I, I worked with something that was clear and layered and printed. And, you know, if I look at that, that was kind of a, a, a harbinger of things to come, you know. So at that time, uh, you don't practice architecture anymore? No, I didn't really have time to sit down and draw projects per se. I had a full load of classes and then this research project. So no. So how your um, architectural background impact the way you approach your art? I think that 
comes from the way I was taught to analyze something like a site. Um, say I didn't really have a program given to me, but just a location. Then being able to go out to that location and analyze it, pulling out information that's, uh, you know, the simple stuff, which would be a figure to a ground, you know, um, so where the buildings are relative to the space around them, that's the easy stuff. But then going back in time and excavating, looking at things that were there before, plans for things in the future, um, you know, even utilities and things like that. And all this information would get layered up and maybe, um, you know, maybe studying the residual spaces would give me an idea of what a program was, but it's that idea that you layer up information in order to seek out something that's missing, um, or available, like a space that's available. Maybe there's like a liminality to something. So there's an edge condition that exists, or like I said, a residual space or something, but it was all through analysis and layering of information. And it's that kind of layering of information and negative space understanding Uh that translates forward into my work. And you can still see that today, I mean, in your work. I think so. I think so, because the latest pieces are really physical. I'm looking over my shoulder to the panels in my room where uh, all my layered up resin pieces are hanging on the walls. So... um, you came to New Orleans uh, for, you went to Tulane after Australia, yes. correct? Yes, I was hired by Tulane to work in the architecture school, also a full-time job. And um, I think, I, I, you know, like I joke, it's, it's, I can be really successful whilst being really miserable, you know, mm-hmm. like succeeding, even though it's not necessarily the thing that I want to succeed at. Um, but what happened while I was teaching in the architecture school is I started taking classes around the campus and took a glass class in the art department at Newcomb College. And that's how the whole kind of glass thing started with me. And it's a pretty sexy material, you know, and it was also like readily available for me to knock around, you know. So tell us about the whole glass thing. The whole glass <laughs> because thing. Because you are uh, in the studio here. Uh, the studio is divided in uh, two piece, two separate spaces. Uh, one space is really dedicated to art, um, a glass art. And the other uh, half of the studio is about um, resin and linen and the painting. Yeah, and that sort of spatial division also has to do with the necessity of keeping materials separate. Um, it's, But one room is my kiln room. Uh, I have two big fusing kilns where glass that's been cut up is then heated and it gets fused together because the heat turns it to liquid and then it cools down and it's, you know, the pieces are then... Melted, melted together. together yeah. um, the technique that I learned at Tulane was hot casting, where there's a giant furnace full of glass, and then that gets ladled out into a mold. Um, so it wasn't until after that that I learned 
fusing per se. And that happened because I uh, got a scholarship to go to Pilchuck Glass School outside of Seattle. Do you know? Do you know? No, like, not at all. But okay, you might be familiar, like with the Dale Chihuly. He was one of the uh, founders of of the school with a few other people. Um, so it's been there for a while, and it's pretty well renowned. But I took a class with a guy named Warren Langley, an Australian coincidence, <laughs> um, and his whole thing, his whole technique was um, architecturally scaled fused glass projects. Well, that was for you. And it was, you know, like I just wanted to kiss the guy on the lips. It was like, oh, man, wow, light bulb, blinking, bells are ringing, you know, because all of a sudden there it was, the connection, the connection between the material that I was like so completely enamored with. But, you know, like hot glass casting is, is a really um, labor and studio intensive pursuit. And I didn't necessarily want that level of investment in it um in the the studio half of it um it's also really incredibly hot and I'm a bit of a wimp sometimes so (laughs) I don't want to be that uncomfortable in New Orleans you know um but his process was very uh, the way he approached the projects by sight and then analysis, and then saying, well, this is the kind of gesture that belongs in this space, and then making that gesture architectural via glass is, I mean, that that was magic, right? So from there, uh, it, it just became this kind of process of my learning as much as I could about it. And I joking, you know, like I would send him these emails after class and I, I came back immediately and I ordered a big kiln so that I could do like big things. Yeah. <laughs> and then I sent him this email with a picture of the kiln that I ordered. And I was like, this is all your fault. <laughs> all of this is your fault. So, you know, flash forward. Uh, now it's, you know, 20 years later and I have this kiln room with two fusing kilns in it and around the wall of the room are uh, the samples from projects that are actually worth keeping um, because lots of samples are dogs and they they get trashed (laughs) Um, but they also show a trajectory in the way I've been thinking about how to handle a handle glass so now like I do a lot of piece work many many pieces that are put together like in a puzzle but it's for me like it's more a, like a secret language it's kind of a weird ah, yeah. yeah i didn't think there's, about there's it pattern it's language. like a big installation i mean you have to you put yeah you put pieces together to create a very big installation usually yeah and that comes from you know getting uh mass you know the side the scale of something achieving great scale through assemblage um you know, so you see that in, in lots of installation work from different artists. But for me, it became a way to tack together uh, different pieces of glass and use, in this case, for the bigger for the bigger kind of installations, use metal as the intermediary. Um, so, you know, there there would be this structure, and then the panel, and then the structure, and then the panel. Um, yeah. So, you know, like it was worked out, it's worked out almost architecturally in like 
and I'm using that in, in this structural sense. Like when you're building a building, there are columns and there are beams. And I, I do that to define the sheathing in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the glass. But it just so happens that the sheathing in my case is made up of lots of different bits of colored glass that are layered up together. So when you are, you are approached by architects... Uh, originally when you have a project because you you work on pretty big scale uh, projects I mean most of your projects are really um, big and I guess the architects are in need of coming to you at the early stage of a project um, you know when yeah um, how how does it work your relationship to what at what stage you uh, get involved initially my entree into working with architects, um, that came from my relationships that existed already with architects that I knew through the architectural education kind of industry, I guess you'd say, you know, Mm -hmm. like being an academic, Mm -hmm. but also from working in architecture. And I made sure that the people that I met, you know, like I built this network of people who, especially the adjuncts, that I met in the different schools that I was either teaching at or lecturing in. Um, I would do these, you know, like guest lectures and, and stuff like that. And that I built this network and then people would be like, you know, like we don't really have public art per se, but we want to do an integrated art project and would love to be able to do this in glass. And that's really how it started. In New Orleans specifically, it started with Children's Hospital and my relationship with Eskew Dumas Ripple Um, because I knew them. I had friends that worked in the office. I was friends with the partner, you know, so it, it, for me, like it was really important to not just make the relationships, but maintain them. And a lot of these people are still my friends, you know, so that yeah, I mean, I capitalized on, on what I was doing. And so you had, um, if you can talk also about uh, Xavier University, and I mean, all your project varies, and you can see in your um, glass room, you know, glass art room, the different samples, there is so many different techniques, and uh, the result, I mean, it's pretty hard for me to explain, but some of the uh, piece of glass I can see here are just melted different colors melt together and just like really get into each other some other and just one piece of glass and you have it's very structured and you have one color touching the other one even though it's only one piece of glass you also have uh, elements that like a wave it's it's glass but it's like a big wave so many techniques. Do you ex- experiment all the time? You know, from you know, the experimentation come with a specific project, or it just you apply your techniques to um, a project. I mean, I don't know if you ex- you understand what I'm. The thing that all the projects share is that they're an assemblage of parts. So depending on, and I mean a lot of parts. So depending on the project, right? So the wavy glass belong to a big room made out of like hundreds and hundreds of panes of wavy art glass set in a stainless steel frame 
And that was a room, a private dining room for a casino. So I had some manner of like putting my thumbprint on it, so to speak, by doing this atomization of parts, right? I could have said each wall of this room was one contiguous piece of glass and it had waves in it and it would be like 13 feet high and eight feet wide or something like that. Instead, what I did is I took those dimensions and I divided them up and then designed metal to make it even look more faceted, you know? So I wanted a, a you know, I, I, I'm not really sure where this whole atomization thing comes from. Um, but anyway, that played out in that way for that particular project. In the chapel at Xavier University, I was working with a few things, relics that the church actually had. And one of them was a piece of kente cloth. It's an African-American Catholic church. They have some altar cloths. And I was looking at those patterns. Um, at the same time, I was looking at Barnett Newman's Stations of the Cross, which are this uh, a series of stark white canvases that are enormous scale they're I can't even remember how big these things are and just standing there they're like my size my height um and on them are simple dark vertical stripes and the stripes change as you go around the room looking at these canvases all right so these canvases are like marching around the room and the two stripes that go down are uh, sometimes they're really sharp, and by the end, um, they're really jagged and blurry and sloppy. Um, in one, like, and the story that I heard about that was that this track was about how Jesus was dragging the cross, and the stronger he was, the cleaner the line. Uh, when the line is really jagged and then all of a sudden it's clear again it's because he's handed the cross to I can't remember now and then you know at one point the cross is stood up and he's no longer burdened with it anyway um so it, there's a story but in in it told in a very minimal way so I took the sort of information of the colors from the cloth and the story of of being able to tell the narrative uh abstractly and I synthesized those two things. Um, I had the site that I was given were these uh, apertures that were very deeply set into a building that I think is like octagonal. We used to joke that it looked a little bit like um, the spaceship from Star Wars, the Millennium, <laughs> <laughs> the Millennium Falcon. Uh, you know, like there was this like kind of like shape. But I had all these windows that went around the outside and they were a weird dimension um, but the pattern that I made and the colors that I chose, the pattern changed in every single window. So it was very neat initially, and then it would just become a little more scattered and then neater. So you could actually like get this, they would, they're kind of animate as you look around because you can see that they're changing, Yeah. you know, and it's because I've taken the reverse image I took a piece of clear glass. I took away some pattern and put in some clear, and that way you're actually seeing this clear stripe march through the other, like, 
the pattern that runs behind. Um, so I don't know if, if that makes any sense at all, but it was a way for me to make something that was very static animate because it's an animate story. I mean, we're t- it, yeah, you know. Yeah. So in between projects, do you continue to work on techniques? Do you, you know, spend time in your uh, studio and just try to figure out things or it comes really when you have a project that comes to you and give you the um, sense of wanting to try something because you have a deeper inspiration? Another good question. All right. So I did this project at Montefiore Medical Center. I'll only answer this by way of looking at a couple of projects. And then the art that's speculative that I'm just doing because I'm doing yeah. it without program. So this project at uh, Montefiore Medical Center was an Einstein hospital. Um, so I used... Einstein and the theory of relativity and uh, magnetic resonance imaging to actually spawn a story in a way to give me a hook into this. So I already had my technique. I already had these like uh, lots of different colors that I was going to layer up. Um, You know, there's this idea that uh, the work could look somewhat galactic somewhat like DNA it could you know like the way I work it doesn't have a specific scale mm-hmm. um, so I took the namesake of the hospital and injected that into what already existed as my kind of MO um, in terms of technique later on uh, I just finished a job uh, using more of a collage technique. And I've, I've sort of moved a little further into the idea that instead of taking sheet glass that has a color and cutting up that specific color, I am painting and cutting up a painting and reorganizing those pieces to give me something that's a bit more, well, a lot more expressive. So that started in a project for a cheese company in Wisconsin where I did landscapes via this collage. So I did paintings. I cut up paintings. I reorganized them into uh, these sculptural forms, and then those were executed in enamels on glass. Um, And the latest project I just did, kind of the same thing happened. I did a painting. I made a collage out of, well, I did a few different watercolors and I cut them up and reassembled them and then that was interpreted in class. So now uh, we're going to talk about the other side of the studio here with linen and color and paintings. I mean, color, you have color's website, but uh, linen, acrylic, and really layers, again, it's, and very architectural, very, um, you have a grid, I don't know. Maybe you can describe it. You have, you know, better vocabulary than I have to describe sure, your I art. Sure, I can describe that. Uh, but it's very interesting uh, and, and a technique I haven't seen uh, before because you can see through. You have different way to see the piece of art uh, on from the side, uh, elevation plan, and uh, that's special. So these are new speculative. By speculative, I mean. These are pieces that I'm just making and they'll go in a gallery and be exhibited that way. Um, 
physically describing them, they are squares of different sizes. So say 16 by 16, 30 by 30, 36 by 36. Each one of these is uh, a wooden box with birch plywood on top that has a gesso coat on it. And that's painted white. On top of the white, there's a a grid, uh, like a half inch by half inch grid. And then on top of that are cut up pieces of paintings. And by paintings, I mean I do acrylic paintings that are color fields on linen. And those linen paintings are cut into little strips that are about a half an inch wide and anywhere from two to six inches long. And those strips, once I have amassed just stacks of them, I cherry pick and put them together not in the way they came off the paintings in the first place. So say I do a whole series of paintings like in different shades of red and then a bunch more in different shades of orange and in different shades of green. Then I take those paintings, cut them up, and then reorganize them so I can come up with a painting that is um, a composition rather that's yellow in the middle and green on the bottom and red on top and maybe there's some pink on top of that. So all of these little pieces are, um, they're glued down, there's resin that's poured on top of it, then I glue more of them down, I pour some more resin on top of that and I glue more of them down. So they have like a, a, they have, not like, they have a physicality to them that's really important to me. Um, It's, it's, I want to open up the space of the painting. And by that, I mean, uh, these are two-dimensional objects that are absolutely three-dimensional at the same time. It is time. absolutely three-dimensional. You know, yeah. like you, the things that are on the top, you can see through them because they're translucent, yes. but they're also casting a shadow because they're not completely transparent. Uh, the things that the color at the back actually adds up with the color that's in front of it to give you the third color where there's an overlap. So I'm still dealing with uh, mixing colors by layering them together. I'm not mixing colors necessarily on a palette, although in the color field paintings I am mixing my own colors to get what I want in the first place. Um, I was never taught how to paint in a classical sense. So if you asked me how to make the color eggplant, I'd be like, yeah, well, there's green and there's blue, and I couldn't tell you how to get there. My painting friends, my friends who are real painters, could rattle off exactly what you would do to make aubergine. (laughs) You know, they make their own black. They do, you know, like, well, I can make my own black too. But, um, you know, for them, it's like, it's a point of pride to make your own black. I'm not, I'm not that way, you know, like... (laughs) And sometimes to me, like to be able to open up a, a, a bottle of acrylic paint and just just go for it, just go for it is like magic. And this is the thing. And now I'm going to backtrack because these relate to the glass in a lot of different ways. They're layered. There's translucency. The colors are there. Um, the raw material is different, but I'm still cutting things up and layering them together. So they share their pattern language. Their reason for being, of course, is different because they're not made for any particular client or site. And in fact, these are sites in and of themselves. They're 
my imagined, they're almost nostalgia-fueled constructions of places that I remember and recall and layer up. So they're, they're in my head, geographical locations. They're quasi-maps because they have a grid on them, but the grid is useless because I've covered it up anyway. Um, the grid has no lines. But I'm alluding to the idea that you can apprehend a space and you know you put a grid out over it and that's how you can locate yourself somewhere right so that's like that old western kind of like the explorers go out into the outback and what's Mm -hmm. left behind is like you know their their bones are all dried up in the desert but their their journal is there and there's like a sketch of a grid and then there's some lines on it and it's like you are here with an x (laughs) you know this is this is what i'm talking about so i'm taking things that that come absolutely from like studying urban design and urban geographies and traveling and you know post-colonial it's interesting culture because stuff. when you uh, talk about the transparency uh, definitely you can see the shadow you can see the texture of the linen which also plays a lot of um, it gives a lot of depth the, the, the texture of the linen and on one of your um, art piece of art here you I mean, the acrylic is usually very shiny, but mm-hmm. on the edge of some of them, you just make it, um, what is the word for that? I mean, it looks like, like it's like the, the glass that you sandblasted, basically. It's yeah, the it does. It has that texture yeah. to it. It's foggy. Um, so my intention is that you're looking through you know, like when you're in an airplane and you're looking through the clouds, like suddenly there's a break in the clouds and you can see the ground. Mm-hmm. That's the idea that the edges, your peripheral vision, your peripheral memory, it's hazy around the edges. So you're looking through to the clear part and then, you know, there's an ambiguity at the edge of your memory memory scale is different you know when you're little you think things are big (laughs) you know what I mean like like that kind of idea that there's mutable territory at the edge yes and that's that's what's happening so technically like if I talk about how that's made it's made by sanding a layer and then putting some paint in the sand marks and then pouring more resin over that to make it shiny again and then sanding the edges and putting paint in the sand marks and so on and so on and so on i really think it it really adds a lot uh to have this different of uh, surface yeah it makes it look um for me it's almost like i don't know uh do you know how antique mirrors look you know, the yeah, edges are yeah, really... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're looking at yourself, but you're also looking at the edges of your reflection that are all muted and everything. Not that this is like a cheap horror story or anything so, like that. No, no, no. No, <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I'm looking around. I, I mean, I, y- y- your um, creative journey, you know, is very interesting because you start with architecture and uh, then you go to the glass art and then right now you are in more... Uh, uh, linen and painting so it's very 
it looks very different, but there is definitely a strong line. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very curious of what will be next. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good question. I Let wish I see. could answer that. Yeah, I'm not I mean, sure. As I go through this, I think I'm becoming a better painter, which kind of horrifies me in a way. Um, because I don't want this to be about material. I want it to be about passage. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a person that's very driven by material and project. So I've got to be careful about not making it into a project that it's still about discovery and not about stasis. You know, one thing is about time passage and the other one is about, you know, marking this specific moment. If I look at these though, I kind of go, wow, I'm leaving my own archeology span because these, you know, they're memory maps. Yes. Like some of them are actually quite specific spaces you know there's one up here that has this kind of like a uh, I don't know I guess it's an eggplant color and there's black and there's another uh, kind of a, a whiny reddy color and in my head I was thinking about my grandfather and his kitchen and I, I don't know I mean I was just imagining this moment where he's cooking and you know, there's, there's something earthy about what he was doing at that moment. It was very, very uh, wedded to the soil in his old country. And I had not, I had not been there ever. That was my imagining that kind of rootedness and in, in the space where he was rooted. So I made this thing and I named it after the space. Yeah, but um, listener needs to go on your website and uh, Instagram to look. You know, no, what yeah, we're talking it's about what we're talking about. But um, your colors are pretty um, powerful and very, very bright. Most of your art is kind of uh, very bright, so you must be at a happy place right now. No, it's the opposite. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot! <laughs> no, no. You know, I'm not afraid of color at all, and that's that. I can thank glass for. Um, I think that when it's employed in one way, it can it can look uh, very much like candy, a little too easy, a little too cartoony. But I think that the way it's employed here builds it up so that it has a kind of a, I don't know, I think it's pretty sophisticated looking actually, even though it's not like black and white and gray or dark blue and gray. Um, you know, to have pink and orange occupy the same piece <laughs> can can sound really revolting and <laughs> like a <laughs> like Barbie, but no, it's no, not. it's not. It's, it's definitely, definitely not. not definitely like, like a kid's toy. No. <laughs> um, I just you know um, to conclude, I also want to uh, you to talk about how involved you are here in your audience with um, young artists. Yes. And how supportive you are about. Yes. I am on the board of an organization that I love that every, everybody should love. It's called Young Artists, Young Aspirations, otherwise known as Yaya. And I've been on the board for a couple few years now. I came to them uh, because back after Katrina, 
I started a glass studio when all the glass studios in town were out, basically. So I will backtrack a little bit on that and say that prior to Katrina, New Orleans had per capita more glass artists here than just about everywhere else except for Seattle and Tacoma. Um, there were a lot of artists here. It was a great place to have a studio. A bunch of us, we all knew each other and we had a pretty tight knit community. Then Katrina hit and all the flooding and all of a sudden people had no studios and it was the end of the summer. So they had sold off all their inventory at art fairs, et cetera. And, and we had a big meeting and decided that we needed a, a a studio for everybody to work in until they recovered and went back to their own studios. So we started the studio. After a while, everybody started succeeding and you know, they had their studios back and we gave New Orleans Creative Glass, which is what it was called, to Yaya. There's some howling in the background. Yeah. <laughs> the Hi. dog's at the door. <laughs> um, so yeah, so now Yaya has this great art center. They have a bunch of kids there every afternoon they range in age from 12 to 20 something and they learn ceramics and glass and mixed media painting um, but it's free after school arts entrepreneurship programming well that's great that's great yeah it's really cool uh their big fundraiser is always around the second weekend of November this year. Good that is know. the 15th, people. Yeah. <laughs> Get your chickens. You ready? Yes. Okay, well, all right. You want to add something? No, except thank you. This has been oh. such a lot of fun. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time. It was such a pleasure speaking with Laurel Pocari. Her work is so inspiring. I cannot wait for the years to come to see more of her creation. More information about Laurel can be found at laurelpocari.com. Stay up to date with her creation on Instagram too, at laurel underscore pocari. This podcast is an ongoing creative conversation for anyone who looks around and sees the added textures in their world and wants to know more about who's doing it. Be sure to share textures with your friends and community. Find your preferred listening platform at valerielegrascom slash podcast. Follow so that you don't miss new episodes. Thank you for listening and à bientôt.